0: to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study, say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch, a co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. If you don't know who we are, have a look at onscript.study and go to the About section and you'll learn more. We're a bunch of Bible scholars who care deeply about helping listeners of all types access some of the current conversations happening in the wide-ranging field of biblical studies. And we want to give you the tip of the iceberg so that you can go deeper. One of the topics about which I care deeply and is an area of research and writing for me is that of violence in the Old Testament. And I came across Christian Hofreiter, whom I interviewed today via one of the trustees at Westminster Theological Center, where I teach and am academic dean here in the UK. Christian wrote a book that I've been looking for for a long time. I can't recommend it enough, and I think you'll discover from the interview that in his wonderful Austrian way, Christian has a great deal of learning and pastoral wisdom and practical experience to offer to connect his, uh, any, any, you know, does a good job connecting his research on violence in the Old Testament to the kinds of concerns and questions that many outside and within the church have raised about this challenging issue. So I hope you enjoy the episode and find a way to get your hands on the book. Uh, in the show notes, we've got a 30% off code that you can use to help you toward buying the book. It's an Oxford University Press publication, so it's not going to be the cheapest thing on earth, but with 30% off, maybe you and a friend can get together and purchase the book. It's well worth the investment. Um, It's one that I will probably read several times. So um, definitely recommend it and hope you enjoy our conversation today. Welcome to Onscript. I'm Matt Lynch. Our guest today is Christian Hofreiter, who is the director of the Zacharias Institute in Vienna and is also a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He's the author of a book that we're going to be discussing today Making Sense of Old Testament Genocide Christian Interpretations of Harem Passages, published by Oxford University Press this year, 2018. Christian, welcome to Onscript. Thanks for having me on that. First, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your work in Austria and, and what it is that you do on a daily basis and the kind of research that you're uh, taking part in.
1: Well, what I do now on a day-to-day basis is really best summed up in a, in a slogan that we use, helping thinkers believe and helping believers think. That's... Uh, why we exist, Uh, we aim to build bridges between people who say, well, this whole God thing, I'm not sure it makes sense to me, and that Bible thing, and so on. And also, Christians who say, well, I do believe in God, I do read the Bible, but I have these big questions that I'd like to think through. And so, to help people along that way, that's really my task, and uh, what I love doing and get to do.
0: Yeah, and I I should probably say you're based in Vienna... Um, and then you're, you're, you're working primarily in Austria. And do you, do you work more widely across Europe? Or where's, what's the scope of your work? So
1: the main focus is on the German-speaking world, Austria, Germany, Switzerland. Uh, I do a lot of speaking at universities, uh, preferably to audiences that aren't all already convinced that faith in God makes sense, uh, or particular faith in God makes sense. So I I love that interaction with students in particular, but I do travel more widely as well. I come back to Oxford to lecture at uh, our Center for Christian Apologetics there and uh, have also been further afield, but it's always that same ethos of engaging people by taking their questions seriously and helping them reason through it while we as well figure out how to reason through them
0: yeah i i like that you you focus both on helping christians think and helping uh what was the other side of it so thinkers helping christians believe. yeah helping thinkers believe um, cuz i've always thought that sometimes apologetics gets stereotyped into just a kind of evangelistic method or something like that when a lot of it is actually maybe belongs rightly within discipleship uh where it's it's helping Christians who who have made some kind of faith commitment understand the the, the foundations of their own belief system in a more um, you know robust and substantial way um, so so you I, I'm curious then as you engage with university students in Europe and and sometimes come back to the UK as well do you see a difference in the kinds of questions that university students are wrestling with across the German-speaking university world and in the UK? Or are they pretty much wrestling with some of the 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 same sorts of questions?
1: I think in some sense, the questions are very similar. They're age-old questions, questions of if God exists and is good and loving, why would he permit so much suffering and injustice in the world? And other questions like that. But in another sense, there's also a difference in that the UK, in my experience, still has more of a Christian heritage that people are aware of. Even students, they might not actually be uh, believers in a sense, they have personal faith, uh, but. It, they seem somewhat closer still to the Christian tradition to the Christian faith than some of the students that I meet in Austria, Germany and Switzerland of course that's a generalization, but overall I'd say that there is a difference in that way
0: and it was it out of that work with university students that um, the the impetus for your current book on understanding old testament genocide came was it was it through those engagements that you you decided hey i need to go back to the foundations look at how christians have christians and jews have wrestled with the problem of violence
1: well it goes a bit further back than that is and is more personal so it goes back to one my love for jesus and the bible i'm a christian i'm excited about who Jesus is, I'm I'm excited about the Bible, but I'm also troubled personally by some of the texts that I find written in the Bible. And that was combined with my experience of the aftermath of genocide in Rwanda, where I spent several weeks and met survivors of genocide and the juxtaposition of talking with survivors of of genocide and hearing very explicit descriptions of uh, massacres carried out with machetes in hand. With some of the texts in the Bible, it seemed to describe something fairly similar. That was really what uh, prompted me personally to say, I want to know how I should think about these texts, given the the reality of genocide in our world.
0: So how is it that you ended up uh, in Rwanda? And and what was was that experience um, like for you?
1: Well, I was a guest of the Anglican Church there, and... uh, Just seeing the kind of work that the church was doing in the country in terms of reconciliation even between uh, perpetrators and victims or survivors who had lost family members. uh, And in terms of general Christian witness and discipleship, so it was an absolutely fascinating and life-changing experience, I would say. What year was that? Oh that was uh, back in two thousand and five so eleven years after the genocide which happened in ninety
0: four it 's interesting in that same year um, i I was at Regent College in Vancouver and i took a i took a Class a summer class that they offered with Gary Haugen, who's the he's the founder. IJM, of, yes, yeah, yes. of IJM, and he was teaching a class called Biblical Justice Global Witness. And of course, he was the I forget exactly what his role was. State Department witness um, for the genocide in Rwanda, and he had to go back and actually basically reconstruct the crime, and and it was the gen, it was the Rwandan genocide that prompted him to start IJM. And and of course they've gone on to do some some really amazing work. So that that was a that was a pretty eye opening and and life changing class for me. Yeah, um, it's not
1: bad. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and so you know I've had a not exactly the same journey, but but in a similar way um, have have felt both challenged in the classroom by uh, people I've spoken with, both believers and non believers about the problem of violence. But then my own engagement with the Old Testament as well, feeling, um, feeling challenged by, by these texts. And so, so then how did you decide what tack to take in your own research into that problem of violence in the Old Testament? There are a lot of routes you could have taken. You could have tried to resolve it morally, or um, you could have tried to uh, look at contemporary approaches, but you took this historical approach. What was, what was the journey toward that?
1: Well, the journey toward that was that perhaps that's the only thing I thought I'd be able to do, because more capable and better equipped people had already uh, attempted to address this issue from a contemporary analytical philosophical perspective. There was a lot of contemporary, very interesting work out there, some very high level, uh, world uh, renowned uh, uh, academic philosophers in the analytical tradition have tackled this, and then there were um, specialists in the Hebrew Bible who had looked at it sort of in a historical uh, setting using the historical critical method, and I love history, and I was interested in in history in church history, and so I was quite keen to find out what can we learn from those who 've gone before us as Christians who 've read these texts as holy scripture and that just uh, was an approach that fitted with my own proclivities and interests and uh, and it turned out to be. A great experience. I mean, as you know, uh, it can be quite lonely and sometimes hard to stay focused on a doctoral research project, but I've never found it to be boring or um, so I never lost interest because it was very varied. Um, I went through the centuries and through the different interpreters and so I learned a lot.
0: Yeah, well, I have to say um, there are a lot of books on the problem of violence in the Old Testament, but there there was a gaping hole in this area. And in fact, I had a I had an MA student that I'm supervising, and originally he had proposed to do a project on early Christian wrestlings with the problem of violence in the Old Testament, he ended up doing a different project. But when he proposed that, I said to him, I've been looking for that book. And then when I saw your book had come out and actually done that plus a lot more, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And I, I, I thought it was such a good book. I really enjoyed reading it. It was. I've read a lot in the area of violence in the Old Testament, but, but this is this is a book that's needed. And um, so it really fills a gap in the field, um, but it's also an engaging read, so I, I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I've done, um, I found one reader who thinks that, so. Uh.
0: <laughs> well, I think you'll find a lot more. Um, maybe it'd be helpful if we set the stage for what it is you're doing in the book um, by. By talking about these five axioms that you outline at the beginning of your book, and, and just to give our, our listeners a sense of where you're going, you're you're looking through history at Jewish and Christian um, interpretations of the problem of genocide in the Bible, and we'll, we can define the, the Hebrew term cherem in a moment, but what are these five axioms and what role do they play in your book?
1: So I I learned this from one of the analytical philosophers who uh, looked at this problem and said, well, why are these sects so problematic for us? His name is Randall Rouser. And I modified it slightly, but essentially um, it looks at convictions that most Christians have and uh, the texts introduce attention into those convictions. The first one is that God is good. Second, the Bible is true. Third, genocide is atrocious. Very few Christians today would want to say, well, God isn't good or the Bible isn't true or genocide isn't atrocious. At least historically, those were quite strongly held Christian convictions. But then if you add to that the observation, more than an axiom, that according to the Bible, God commanded and commended genocide, you get attention because you have to give up one of the three. Either God isn't good or the Bible isn't true or genocide isn't atrocious or... Your observation 4 isn't correct, and it's actually not true that according to the Bible, God commanded and commanded genocide. So those are the logical options that uh, I saw, and it, it works very well in terms of understanding the history of interpretation, because you can see how the various ways of reading these texts really fall quite neatly into one of those categories, how they, play, how, how they consist of an interplay between those various axioms and observations.
0: Yeah, and then you've got your fifth one, which I guess is more of a, a, a deduction from, or a, a you know, a follow-on from the four points, which is that a good being, let alone a supremely good being, would never command an atrocity. So, quite uh, you need that because
1: yeah. otherwise you could you you could uphold everything and just say, well, but then in this case, a supremely good being just commanded an atrocity. Uh, I didn't highlight it because, in a sense, that. In the effective history, so the way people have actually read these texts, no one has really argued about this and said, well, this is an atrocity, but sometimes it could be in commands an atrocity. So that's a theoretical option where you could go. But historically, no one has gone there. So I I didn't. But you're quite right to remind me that uh, there are five and and we should uh, mention all five
0: yeah and then you've also chosen to you had to limit your study in some ways, so you focus on harem texts and this is a Hebrew term. maybe if you could define that and explain a little bit of of what you what you saw you know if you had to kind of d- describe some of the broad contours of history in in re- interpreting that Hebrew concept or or that issue in the Bible, uh, what are some of those broad contours so first you know defining that term and then some of those broad contours.
1: Right, so the term harem uh, has a number of meanings. The one I was most interested, or I was uniquely interested in, was the war harem, uh, which means to devote a population to destruction in the context of war, to annihilate them with a sacral connotation. And uh, men, women, and children. So this is what it means. So you can see the affinity of the description of the war Kherem two descriptions or definitions of genocide. Obviously genocide is a 20th century term that was coined in the 40s but uh, it describes something somewhat comparable though of course one can discuss that in detail. So why did I focus on Kherem? Because I felt it was the most uh, blatant or the most difficult, the most violent example that I could take and if I could find... Uh, a way of faithfully and wisely reading these texts then it should be possible to apply what I learn when I read these texts to other texts as well.
0: Mm. And and so um, as you looked at the history of interpretation of the Harem text, you primarily let's you know think about the book of Joshua and the command to destroy the Canaanites that comes you know prior to that in Deuteronomy. At what point in, in the history of interpretation do interpreters start wrestling with that as an actual problem to be dealt with?
1: So in a sense you could say that the criticism of Violence already starts within the Old Testament. Uh, think of Hosea, sort of the criticism there of Jezreel and the house of Jehu. Uh, another point that you could lift out is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, you have heard it said that, you know, hate your love, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. So there are many earlier points, but then specifically when it comes to harem. And Old Testament wars, really the second century religious leader, Marcion, Marcion of Sinope, is uh, the person that focuses the attention of, really, the Christian church on this. And and after him, you can't ignore these texts any longer, uh, and you can't ignore his criticism.
0: Yeah, so it is... So we've got Marcion in the in the second century, end of the first century, early second century, um, and he's you know he takes a pretty radical solution because for him the God of the Old Testament is abhorrent and and a a, you know a lesser deity than the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus. Um, So how does Marcion get to the point? Like how. how do do we get to the point where there's someone like Marcion who's lobbying this critique at the Old Testament? Um, I I know about him, but I don't really know a lot of how, you know, what the context out of which he comes.
1: Yeah, so it's fascinating to me that it is Marcion and not some Gnostic or some pagan philosopher who raises this criticism first. Uh, this is significant because Marcion is really shaped by what he understands of Jesus and Paul. So Marcion certainly considered himself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. He uh, had a canon, of actually the first New Testament canon, so a list of books that he thought should form part of the Bible for Christians, uh, a version of Luke, and uh, also ten epistles of Paul. So it was really his reading of Luke and his reading of Paul that shaped his worldview. So, in a sense, you can say the criticism of these texts has its impetus in a reading of Jesus and Paul. So, I, I think that's quite significant historically. Now, of course, the solution Marcion proposes wasn't really acceptable to the emerging, emergent Christian church. His solution was to say, okay, premise one, God is good, we have to get rid of this. And the way we do it is to say there are two gods. So the God of the Jewish scriptures is not the good God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is the Demiurge, the one who created everything, but he's just, perhaps, perhaps even evil. And uh, in any event, he's not the the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think pointing out the problem he does really based on his reading of Paul and Jesus, uh, his solution, of course, goes far beyond them and Uh, you can see why Christians wouldn't have accepted it then and and don't find it acceptable now.
0: Do you find any affinity between the critique of Marcion, you know, maybe not his solution, but uh, the critique of Marcion and contemporary Christian critiques of the problem of violence in the Old Testament?
1: Well, I think what Marcion does very well, and many others follow him, is to take particular specific Old Testament stories or quotations and set them side by side with uh, quotations from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and say, look, there's a tension here. Now, he would say there is an irreconcilable contradiction, which is, for my money, too much, but that there is a tension is obvious. And he just says, well, listen, we need to say something about this tension. So in that sense... I think it resonates. Now, another way in which it resonates with contemporary language is that people like to talk or sometimes often talk about the Old Testament God as though that Old Testament God were completely different from the New Testament God. Uh, And in a sense, that language has a Marcionite ring to it. Now, very few of those who use that language today mean to say there is actually an entity, a God, Separate from a second entity, another god, the way Marcion did, but the language definitely has some similarities to to Marcionite talk.
0: Yeah, and I think the other similarity th- that I find is I don't know if Marcion spoke this way specifically, but uh, is the the use of the phrase tribalistic deity to refer to the god of the Old Testament, and this is by Christians too, and and often saying, well, you know, in the Old Testament you have the projection of a people who were tribalistic and they they projected a God who was violent because they themselves were violent and that's the kind of God they wanted. Um, and then that's often, as you said, set against radically the God we see revealed in Jesus. And so I think, it, it, I'd be curious to see what you think, but it seems like that's another foundational premise in contemporary Christian discourse about the problem of violence that we see in Jesus the God, uh, a revelation of who God truly is. And moreover, that God is a God who loves and forgives his enemies. And so from there, then we work outward to other Old Testament texts, and we have to figure out then what to do with the Old Testament. We have to figure out what to do with this Bible.
1: Well, so as a hermeneutical approach, approach an approach to interpretation, I think looking at Jesus and beginning and ending with Jesus, Jesus Christ, I think makes a lot of sense if one is a Christian. Uh, because for us, uh, it is paramount that when we look at Jesus, we see God. We see God in the flesh. And it's the He is the Word, Uh, He is the Word made flesh. So that's also how I read the Bible. But uh, beginning with that, and then ending up saying the Old Testament is nothing but the projection of a tribe that's warfaring and self serving. Uh, is a very long way, and it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't follow. One doesn't lead to the next. So I would have, I would share that starting point, but I would not arrive at that conclusion.
0: Same conclusion, yeah. And so, so let's move to origin because I think for a lot of Christians, um, again, contemporary Christians wrestling with this problem, um, it's it's origin who gives for a lot of people is the key to. Um, to this freedom to read the Old Testament, um, especially the violent texts, allegorically. Um, so so what kind of shifts do we see in Origen's approach to the harem texts in Joshua and Deuteronomy and elsewhere?
1: Well, it, it, it's interesting. You should say that Origen sort of gives people permission to read the text in that way because obviously for... Um, most uh, Orthodox, with a small o, uh, students of church history, Origen is mostly known as a heretic. You know, He was branded as a heretic, the father of originism, And so I think um, m- many listeners may think, well, if this is really what Origen does, then we should probably stay clear of it. So the reason this way of reading the scriptures have become, has become so influential is one, that Origen didn't invent it, he just did what he learned from others before him Philo who was a Jew contemporary with Jesus uh, Barnabas uh, Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria and then also Origen does something that others have done before him but more importantly uh, Origins reading then is replicated in people who are recognized saints at least in the Western Church so Gregory the Great John Cassian the father of sort of monasticism in the West in the monastic spirituality Isidore of Seville another saint and then it becomes the stable reading of the Glossa Ordinaria which as you know is sort of the study Bible of the Middle Ages so it's a strong tradition Origin is prolific and influential in it but uh, Origin would if one reads it that way, one has many more examples to point to other than Origen himself. I think that's the first point. The second point I've already alluded to, so Origen is, is not an inventor, an innovator in that way. He does what others have done before him, to read the text allegorically. Actually, by that time that Origen works, in the 3rd century, it was commonly understood that any text that was inspired, that was somehow a holy text, was capable of being interpreted in a spiritual way, in a figurative way. That was part and parcel. So if you denied that, that would be tantamount to denying that the text is inspired. So that was absolutely the way holy texts were read at that time. Origen himself says, well, where do I get the permission to read it? allegorically? I get it from Paul. He quotes 1 Corinthians a lot. He quotes Galatians a lot. So he says, I'm doing what Paul does here. For instance, reading Hagar uh, allegorically in Galatians 4 and so on. Uh, And two, my interpretation is not random either. It's also what I find in Paul. When Paul talks about the spiritual armor, he talks about Spiritual warfare, warfare not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, Ephesians 6. So Origen is actually a lot more biblicist in his figurative reading that uh, those who haven't actually read him might surmise. And so taking these two things together, the example of Paul and the specific content that Paul gives to to warfare, Origen does one thing that is new. He uses the spiritual reading as a response to outside critique. So that is where he is the first to do it, not the last to do it. People like Kelsus, the Neoplatonic philosopher who wrote about uh, 70 years before Origen responded to him. And uh, Origen says, well, listen, you misunderstand the nature of these texts Of course, if you read it sort of in a stupid literalistic wooden fashion, you will go astray and the heretics do that. And Origen also says that the Jews do this, so that's obviously a a problem for us, seeing what critiques of Judaism have led to in in terms of the history of the Christian church and our guilt towards the Jewish people. But Origen writing in the third century, that's what he says. And then says, "Well, seeing that the literalistic reading is wrong, we need to read it in a spiritual way," and, and he does that. I think very very beautifully in many instances. Mm.
0: Yeah, I was just going to read um, one of uh, a, a quote from his uh, homily on Joshua, uh, and this is from page sixty seven in your book. And he writes, "Within us are the Canaanites. Within us are the parasites. Here are the Jebusites." In what way must we exert ourselves? How vigilant must we be, or for how long must we persevere, so that when all these breeds of vices have been forced to flee, our land may rest from war at last and so he he takes he takes the the different the, you know the seven Canaanite nations and he spiritualizes them as vices within the believer that need to be exterminated and put to death and so and so, does he then, in doing that, um, also deny that a good God would literally command the extermination of these enemies, or is he saying it's both end?
1: It's definitely both end for origin, no question about it. So, he does not deny the historicity. He assumes it. That's very clear from a number of the passages that I, I exegete uh, in the book. Uh, what he does say is... For us Christians, there's neither here nor there. Uh, what the Holy Spirit says to the Christian church is this. This is why this is Holy Scripture for us. That's the meaning that's intended by the divine author, the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures. And this is how the church is to read it. Uh, I mean, the way he does it, there is um, a beautiful passage in, in another one of those homilies where or you can see origin at work. Uh, he, I'll, I'll quote it. He says, "...unless those physical wars bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history could ever have been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ who came to teach peace so that they could be read in the churches. For what good was the description of wars to those to whom Jesus said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you, and so on. Do not avenge yourself." So, origin... Unlike Marcion says, I accept the decision of Jesus and the apostles to say we should read these texts. So I accept these texts, the Jewish scriptures, as holy, as holy scripture. And I accept that we should read them in the church because I am a disciple of the disciples of the apostles who are disciples of Christ. So he argues as a faithful son of the church, as it were. That's why I accept the scriptures. But also he says, I see the tension. I see Jesus says, don't avenge yourself, you know, love your enemies. And here we read of these wars. So how do I resolve this tension? Well, clearly the literal sense must not be the only sense and the sense that is significant for us. There must be more to this text. So I I find it a quite beautiful example to see why Origen accepts it on the strength of the example of the apostles and their disciples and then how Origen reasons for out the tension saying, well, of course, I give priority to what Jesus is about loving your enemy. So therefore, there must be this other meaning in it for us reading it in Christian uh, settings.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really helpful approach. And, and one that in practice, a lot of Christians already adhere to, you know, in the way that sermons are preached on books like Joshua, you know, we, we don't tend to, to preach this book as a call to finish the job literally uh, for that that Joshua left incomplete. I think the challenge maybe that he, that Origin doesn't address for a lot of Christians is that God would have ever commanded it. Origen doesn't seem to mind that issue. You know, it, maybe he relegates it to a different dispensation, and that was something God did in the past. It was limited. To that era, and now that no longer has ongoing value for us as Christians, um, so I think I think that's where maybe Origin doesn't provide a resolution that a lot of contemporary interpreters of the Bible would want. Is that fair?
1: That's right. I think that's right. If you stick with Origin and limit yourself to Origin that's where you would end up. And it is, he does say, so there's this, this difference in dispensation. I mean, what, one thing that does suggest to me, just as an observation, is that today we ha- have very strong moral intuitions about non-combatant immunity, in particularly the fate of children, women, the elderly in war. And one thing that I realized through my studies is that this intuition was not so strong so well attested, so widespread in, the, in antiquity. So none of the pagan critics of Christianity raises this point. Why? Because it clearly wasn't an issue for them, or at least it's, uh, it, it's, it's one good explanation for it. So what does that mean for us as we think about these texts? Well, one thing it does mean is the reason why you and I and our contemporaries, at least in the West, find these texts so very problematic is that Jesus was so successful In shaping our moral intuitions. The ethos of the Sermon on the Mount, the love of enemy, the dignity of all humankind, those of other races, those of other religious persuasions, those of other backgrounds, that's not self-evident, you know, much as it is mentioned in the the Declaration of Independence. It hasn't been self-evident to all humankind uh, for all time. And the reason we feel so strongly about it is actually one outcome of Jesus Christ and his teaching and example being very successful in shaping our moral intuitions. Um, so in a sense, the pro- and you see that beginning with Marcion. Marcion doesn't come up with the problem de novo. It's the teaching and practice and example of Jesus that causes these texts to be problematic for him in the first place.
0: Yeah, so because we live downstream from Jesus, we're able to raise the objection that we wouldn't otherwise be able to raise um, you know, without, without his teachings
1: That's right, I mean we might theoretically be able but I think as a matter of historical fact the, 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 the fact is the reason we feel so strongly about it is uh, to a large degree the a fruit of the, the influence of the gospel on our moral intuition
0: Right, are you ready for a speed round? Sure Okay, so the the idea is that I ask questions and you've got a maximum of about let's say 10 seconds to to give your response. All right. What's the most influential book in biblical or theological studies in the last 50 years?
1: So, uh, I have no idea to be honest. 50 biblical or theological studies?
0: Yep, you can you can pick either one.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to say, what was a game changer? Um, I don't know. One thing that I find uh, a really interesting approach to the New Testament, it's probably not, you know, I think it should be so influential, is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Baucom. I'm just going to pick that one. I think that's a novel, interesting approach to questions of historicity that I'm just going to name uh, more as a desideratum than a statement of fact.
0: Okay. What's the constructive role of doubt for a believer?
1: Oh, doubt is essential because without doubt, uh, we would very quickly become full of pride. We would lack empathy, uh, and we would almost certainly not only be wrong, but remain wrong. Uh, in in many of our convictions,
0: what music is likely to be heard on your playlist?
1: Anything from Bach to uh, contemporary worship.
0: Now uh, you're Austrian, is that right? I am. Are you Austrian? Okay, so uh, it's time for Austrian stereotypes. Um, can can you guess what I'm going to ask now?
1: I have suspicions.
0: Okay. Are, are the hills truly alive with the sound of music? Of course. Okay. It's, in the,
1: it's in the movie.
0: Didn't you see? Yeah I, yeah, I just wanted to confirm if in reality, you know, that's the case. I, I did spend a summer in Schladming. Oh, uh, one, uh, with one time. Uh,
1: Torchbearers.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes, I did okay. their um, summer mountain climbing program uh, back in, I think it was in 2000. Uh, so I, I found that to be the case. I just wanted to see if you, you could confirm that. Um, so how do you solve a problem like Maria? Uh,
1: by embracing her.
0: Okay. And uh, can you yodel? Not
1: really. Otherwise, you'll make me do it.
0: Well, uh, okay. You, you ju- are you just trying to get out of it? No, no, I really can't. Okay. I'd be delighted, too, if I could. Do you have good friends who can yodel? Uh, yes, my mother can yodel. So, Do you think she'd be willing to send a recording? I can ask her. Okay. Uh, what do you think of Arnie? He'll be back. <laughs> All right. That's enough of the stereotypes. Um, uh, do you eat schnitzel? Breakfast, lunch, and supper. What's What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die?
1: Oh, um, I think the idea that... Ancient authors don't deserve the benefit of the
0: doubt. That's a good one. All right. Do you have any hidden talents? Well, I mean, not like I know your talents anyway. So, <laughs> talents that wouldn't otherwise land on your CV.
1: Hmm. I, I mean, there's nothing springs to mind. That sort of. I mean, a friend of mine used to say, "Well, he can he can glue things really really well, and he's a handy a handyman." I am not. So. What is a hidden talent, you know the others would be more stereotypes like skiing, and I mean that's not a talent anyways, that's just an Austrian stereotype that we're born with skis, so no i'm afraid i think i'm I'm coming up blank, probably, so therefore my hidden talent is excessive humility
0: <laughs> um, all right, so I, I see you're sitting by your bookshelf, so i'd like you at uh, what's maybe I don't know what books you have on your desk, but if you could pick the closest book to you and then turn to page 56 and, and read the first full sentence.
1: The problem is that the closest book to me is so it's mine.
0: Okay, it has to be besides your own book. Okay, uh, let's... Uh,
1: page 56. And then first sentence. Yeah, You're doing the C.S. Lewis game. You're trying to complete... <laughs> uh, tell me which author and so on. The first full sentence.
0: Yeah, and I might need to translate you to translate it. No,
1: no, it is English. The quality of Christian love transcended transcended the highest in Judaism and Hellenism.
0: Hmm. Okay. I can't guess the author of that. Who was that? The author is Roland Bainton,
1: Christian Attitudes Toward War and Peace.
0: Okay. What's one thing that you don't get about the British?
1: Ha, I'm married to uh, an English woman, so I have to be careful what I say. And um, what do I not get about the British? Well, I lived in in England for seven years, so very little surprises me. Um,
0: How about I when think, you first got there? What yeah. was a, You know?
1: Yes. So. Well, I, one thing that is still difficult to understand is why it is such an art form to be awkward when you introduce yourself. But basically, <laughs> the, the one rule about introducing yourself to people who you don't know is you have to do it awkwardly. Then you've done it correctly. That, that's uh, Kate Fox's observation in, in uh, watching the English. And, uh, and I, 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 that, that is kind of, the, I still find that
0: remarkable. And so you kind of, how does that awkwardness come across? What are some of the well, mannerisms? Well, I'm not quite
1: sure, you know, outstretched hand, or then maybe no hand at all, or, I mean, who speaks first, and do you go to people and introduce yourself? And so, I mean, you certainly don't go like, you know, in America, you know, hey, I'm Bob, you know, yeah. and I'm a cattle rancher. <laughs> and uh, people are like hold on, too much information, you know? <laughs> this is, uh, no need to disclose all this. I mean, even hello, I'm Bob is too much. So, yeah, so it's basically, uh, I love it, but it's, it, it's still a social code that I don't always find uh, perfectly
0: easy to read. <laughs> Last question. What, um, what's a question in your apologetics work as you engage with, with different groups and audiences and universities and so on that you find most challenging and perplexing? To address,
1: so I think kind of the hiddenness of God is is hard. Uh, you know, when people say, "Well, why isn't God more obvious?" But less on a philosophical level, but just on a personal level. If somebody tells me, "Listen, I really, really, really quite like to believe," and I have prayed, but I just have the sense that God hasn't answered. So. Now my conviction is God has answered by becoming one of us, human, and we have a good, reliable record of what it looks like to encounter God in the flesh. Uh, But still, I I find, even even, even though I think there is a way that we can uh, address this question that is actually helpful. Uh, I still find this is sometimes a, a difficult question. Uh, why? Because it's very heartfelt, and it comes from an honest, inquiring heart that would like to, be, generally, would like to believe.
0: Mm. Yeah, rather than a, a kind of cheap shot, gotcha question from the sidelines, this is this is a question people are, are truly feeling and wrestling with.
1: Yes, except the intellectual ones, you know, they, some of them are difficult, but they're not existentially so difficult and and also i think there are robust ways of thinking about uh, the ways uh, about the objections to the faith that are often raised
0: all right well we're we're running short on time but we and we've barely gotten past origin um but i i want to just ask about augustine and the divine command theory because that's a not only was it deeply influential but it's it's also still prevalent in contemporary christian uh, discourse about the problem of violence, so um, he augustine takes takes us into a new direction um, takes us in a new direction with divine command theory. Could you just describe what that is and um, and then what he contributes to Christian reflections on harem texts
1: exactly so the divine command theory basically says that it is god's command that determines whether a given action is good or bad. Uh, there is no higher standard outside God to which one might appeal. There's nothing intrinsic to the action itself, but it's really God's speech act that determines uh, what is good or bad. So, if you apply this and com- to the Kerem text and combine it with some of the other premises, uh, obviously the goodness of God, but also the truth of Scripture, and also the Conviction that you have understood the scriptures correctly and that what is commanded and commanded here is indeed genocide, then you end up with a situation where you say, well, if Joshua and the Israelites had done this apart from God's command, of course this would have been a crime and horrific. However, the fact that God commanded it changes everything because God is good, all his commands are good. To obey the good commands of a just God is always a good thing so god is blameless and those who obey him are blameless and therefore the action that they carried out is without blame and is not atrocious so that's how it works uh, in and and i think it has the advantage of being philosophically rigorous uh, but it has the disadvantages of being uh, existentially unpalatable
0: <laughs> yeah and I, I think um, I mean that's my my reaction to it. And so, do you think that's you know, as as advocates of this position try to make a case for it, what kind of response would they have to someone who say who says, I you know, I find that so unsatisfying and actually abhorrent? Um, would is the response just that? Well, if God commands it, you have to kind of adjust your conceptions of. Justice to God's own commands?
1: Exactly. I think that would be what, what advocates of this position uh, would focus on. And now, of course, uh, if you have the strong conviction that A, God is good, and that B, the Bible is true, and that C, you have read these texts correctly, then this has a certain plausibility to you. But for most of our contemporaries, it is much more likely that God is not good, or, or that there is no God, or that the Bible, a very old book, is not wrong in everything and uh, not right in everything that it says. Um, especially in cases like this, so uh, our contemporaries would think, why would you go there? Why wouldn't you modify, you know, what you say about God or what you say about the Bible? And you can see a classic example of that. Uh, when you read uh, a short article in the Guardian newspaper written by Richard Dawkins, the uh, eminent uh, biologist of Oxford University and and sort of atheist polemicist, who attacks a Christian philosopher, eminent Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig, who takes more or less this divine command theory line and says, you know, why I won't debate him. This, uh, he calls him a deplorable apologist for genocide. Now, if you Google it, uh, just using the names of of Dawkins and Craig and and genocide, you'll you'll find it immediately. Uh, It's a prime example of effective propaganda. I mean, it's very much below the belt. It's very unfair. It begins with ad hominems uh, against William Lane Craig. So so it's extremely unfair. But what it shows you is how easy it is in a sort of a, a, a secular or, or or even a neutral context to shoot down uh, that line of argument and how effective this is rhetorically. And There are 1,400 comments that you could read on that article <laughs> if, if you wanted to be persuaded how people feel about this way of thinking about it
0: yeah i'll make a point of scrolling through those later um so 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 the divine command theory as as you discuss in your book and do a great job unpacking this you you know it it was picked up by Aquinas and then later by calvin and and other people along the way you know this held a massive sway over a Christian thinking about the problem of violence what so, so let's say for our listeners who who at a gut level find that abhorrent. What is the contribution of this view? What, what do we still need to take away from it that might be useful in our thinking about the problem of violence in the Old Testament?
1: Well, so I think it, it helps us in a number of ways. Uh, one, it does give us one way in which internally w- we can respond to the objection that uh, you have to give up your faith because there are irreconcilable contradictions in it. So if somebody presents this uh, tension between Old Testament and New Testament as a defeater to your faith and says, look, here's a problem, there's no way you can resolve it, you can say, actually, I can resolve it. It might not be palatable to you. It's not even existentially palatable to me, but I know it works philosophically, philosophically and intellectually. So therefore, your objection that says, unless you want to be Uh, intellectually dishonest, you have to give up your faith, falls to the ground. I have at least one way of answering it. Now, in my opinion, it's always better to have more than one way, and I think there's more than one way of answering it. So it does that job for us. What it also does for us, it does, I think it is helpful, I mean, it's sort of, it's uh, to, to think about horrific things, can be beneficial for us because it uh, makes us stop uh, and pause. It jolts us out of complacency, and it's very drastic. I mean, these stories in Joshua, they're extremely drastic stories, and they are there for a reason if we believe that the Bible is inspired, which I do. So we... Basically, I think what Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, and you know, more recently Richard Swinburne help us do to say, listen, um, at least think about this, you know, and 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 how would it reframe? How would you think about your own life? How would you think about sin, the consequences of sin, sanctification, forgiveness, in light of the stark reality of death? And uh, so, I think there's a lot that we can learn. Uh, from that approach it's just not uh, i i think it would be unfortunately if someone felt that this was the only approach that christians can take Mm.
0: yeah and and i suppose it also as a as a challenge to us asks for those who those of us who do take scripture as inspired um is are we going to set our own um standards above the Bible standards or God's standards in our thinking about uh, what's just and good and right um, f- in in terms of what God may have done in the past. Uh, I think I think for me, one of the challenges of the divine command theory is that y- you you end up with a pretty radical disjunction between even revealed concepts of what justice is and what it should look like and God's mm-hmm. own actions. And so you, you, there's this, it seems like an irreconcilable distance between what God has done in the past and what he then says in terms of how to act justly and and pursue that in the world.
1: Exactly. I think it can easily be an, an oversimplification, but I, I think you're quite right. And that's sort of... Um, a point that Augustine makes uh, in conversation with uh, one of his opponents, a Manichaean bishop, uh, where he says, you read the Bible in such a way as to remove all authority from the heart of the Scriptures and to make each person his own authority for what he approves or disapproves of in any Scripture. That is, each person is not subject to the authority of the Scriptures for his faith, but subjects the scriptures to himself, with the result not that something is pleasing to him because he finds it written in that lofty authority, but that it seems correctly written because it has pleased him. Mm-hmm. And sort of that idea that scripture is a wax nose, wherever we don't like or what the zeitgeist doesn't like, we sort of discard, and whatever we personally like or the zeitgeist likes, we embrace. I think that is a danger, and I think... Uh, Augustine was very aware of that kind of danger, and so he pushes very far the other way. But I think we can certainly learn from that uh, and, and should learn from it as well, yes.
0: Yeah, so you um, you also cover in your book, and, and again, we don't quite have time for this, but um, you, you talk about the, the use of harem texts in relation to the Crusades, the Inquisition, the conquest of the New World. Um, without getting into all the details— What's your response when people raise those standard, that standard kind of set of three, um, when talking about the use of the Bible in justifying violence?
1: So, it's a twofold response. One, I think the blanket statements that one finds in the literature, including in this uh, Roland Bainton's very influential book. Uh, are hard to justify on the basis of the evidence. So if you actually go through crusading histories and songs and uh, and so on which and and sermons which I did you find there's a lot less reference to Joshua and the conquest than you might have expected. Which is not the same however as to say this had no influence at all because texts work in a way that they shape our social imaginary and what, what the way we think about the world in general. And the most influential texts perhaps do so without us ever quoting them. So I, I would never want to argue that one thing had nothing to do with the other. I think they actually had things to do one with another. And there are some examples where you find people appealing specifically to harem texts to justify massacres after they occurred. For instance, the Jerusalem Massacre in July 1099 or a massacre among the Pequot Indians in May 1637. So, it, it, it does there are incidents. Uh, these overt appeals to these texts are very much the exception, not the rule. But I think we have to be honest and say we probably cannot claim that these texts had had no no influence. Now, of course, I think the problem is that not that people took the Bible too seriously, but that they didn't take Jesus seriously enough. Because if you take Jesus as a Christian, you read the Bible learning from Jesus seriously, then you will never uh, become violent in sort of trying to serve your own interests and expropriate others. So uh, for my money, Christians become violent not because they take Jesus too seriously, but they become violent because they don't take Jesus seriously Mm. enough.
0: So what's your own favored approach to the problem of violence? What's your way of wrestling with these difficult texts in Deuteronomy and Joshua?
1: I don't have one approach where I say this is the one approach and I think everybody should read the text in this way. I actually find myself oscillating between the various approaches. Some of the approaches we haven't uh, yet discussed, uh, which are more recent ones. So big questions that I think we should bring to the table are questions like, uh, what kind of progress is there in God's self-revelation? God doesn't tell us everything on the first page of the Bible or in the first encounter with the people of Israel but God makes himself progressively clearer and clearer that has to play a role in how we read the older texts in light of the newer text specifically in light of Jesus 2. Um, in What does it mean that a perfect uh, all-knowing God stoops down to reveal himself to very imperfect, very little-knowing creatures well there's a lot he cannot tell us and definitely not tell us all at the same time Uh, Calvin called this accommodation. Now, that obviously happens on a cognitive level because we couldn't possibly understand everything there is to know and understand about the universe. But it also happens on a moral level. You see this most clearly when Jesus talks about divorce in the New Testament. He says, yes, Moses commanded you X, and that's Torah. That's the highest level of authority in Jesus' time in Judaism That's the word of God, the law given through Moses. And yet Jesus says that actually was a concession to the hardness of your heart. That was not God's good and perfect will. So that allows us at least to ask the question, are there other bits of Torah and other parts of the Old Testament that are not an expression of God's good and perfect will, but a concession to the hardness of hearts, to the violent nature of the times, to specific needs of a specific community at one point in history. So those are all things I would want to bring to the table. And then I would want to ask questions about genre, ancient Near Eastern conquest accounts. I would want to ask about translations. So The text itself, I think, uh, leaves question if you read it carefully. And in one sentence, you read that everybody was killed in a particular city. In the next chapter, you read of people living in that city. So, if complete genocide is meant, who are these people? So, you don't just by carefully reading the text and by thinking theologically about the nature of revelation, you'll see that it is not as clear-cut as to say, well, either you take the Bible seriously and then you have to read it literally, by which I mean X, and therefore the only thing you can do is Y, maybe command theory. Actually, you can take the Bible very seriously and believe that it is truly the Word of God and trustworthy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and yet you come to different conclusions about what is actually said. For instance, by paying attention to the Hebrew and to the historical context, and many other narratives. So I think sort of this historical reading of the text, uh, also looking to the language and the genre and just carefully reading the text combined with the spiritual reading that we find in Gregory the Great and the Glossa Ordinaria and all these places, that actually is a second equally ancient, equally well-attested way of reading these texts that sits alongside the Augustinian line down through Aquinas and Calvin and and there may be other ways too so personally i find myself oscillating i i think okay so if 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 i'm today i'm going to sit with augustine and i'm going to listen to the scripture from you know, listening to Augustine. And tomorrow I'm going to sit with Gregory the Great and with John Cassian and listen to it from that perspective. And then the third day I might say I'm going to read John Walton and, and see, and you know, what he as an Old Testament scholar has to say. I and mean, he had a book uh, out recently with his son, uh, J. Harvey Walton, <coughs> The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, where they question a lot of the assumed interpretations just from an Old Testament context. So, In in that way I find myself oscillating, I find uh, we don't have to be dogmatic about every little question or even every big question that comes to us, uh, as long as we are firm in what I take to be core, for instance the creeds, and I'm a a creedal Christian, uh, then we can say, well here actually there isn't a creedal determination of how we should read these texts, the Church has read it in different ways over the centuries, and so we are free Mm -hmm. to do the same.
0: Well, Christian, I really appreciate uh, this book and the work that you've done, and I hope that our listeners take the opportunity to sit with your book and journey with all these great thinkers throughout history who have wrestled with this challenging but important question. Thank you so much for your time.
1: That's yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.